Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Today marks the end of an additional $600 per week benefit for many unemployed Americans in the midst of a pandemic-induced recession. Congress has failed to come to terms on a new relief package and clashed on the question of how to extend the supplemental cash. Meanwhile, California lawmakers have been drafting a plan to make up those funds if the federal money dries up. We're going to discuss what's in the works to help close uh, to 7 million unemployed Californians, where the recession is headed, and how lawmakers are responding. Joining us is Greg Ipp, Chief Economics Commentator for The Wall Street Journal. Greg Ipp, welcome to the program. Uh, We will connect with Greg Ipp. In the meantime, we'll say good morning to our own Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent, KQED, co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Welcome, Marisa. Great to be here, Michael. Good to have you. And uh, let's begin by talking about this relief bill and uh, it's affecting so many people. Uh, Deadlines are coming up today. And uh, the fact of the matter is that um, uh, at this point, uh, we've got a gap of what, about two trillion dollars between what the Democrats are putting forward and what the Republicans are? Yeah, just a couple trillion there. No big deal, right? Um, Yeah, so uh, what we're hearing out of D.C. is that the Senate did adjourn for the weekend. Um, So there could be negotiations, but probably not in person. We know uh, into late Friday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer were huddling with the White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows um, and the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin on a potential deal, but emerged uh, both sides saying they're still very far apart. Um, I think, you know, as you mentioned, this big sticking point is, of course, this $600 in supplemental aid, which was a figure, um, I believe the Treasury Department actually came to with, with with Democrats in the spring, essentially saying that's the average of what Americans um, would need to fully replace their wages. Because, you know, in most states, like in California, you only get about 55%, I think, under unemployment of what you usually make. Um, but there's also big other disagreements, Michael. I mean, we're talking about the fact that um, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, says that a, a sort of red line for him is this liability um, waiver that businesses and, and institutions could essentially be, you know, not be sued um, if they bring people back and they contract coronavirus. Uh, Democrats want to see money for states and local governments, which um, in California here, if we don't get, is going to trigger deep cuts in the fall. Um, and and so, as you said, I mean, we're talking a trillion dollar package versus a three trillion dollar package. And it just doesn't feel like there was the urgency this week to get it done, even though this cliff is basically coming tonight at midnight and and in reality really happened last weekend because that's when states sent out that last check to most folks. And you mentioned uh, who's conferring here. Mitch McConnell is not in the mix and the Republicans have been charging, uh, have been charged with running down the clock, McConnell specifically. But there's also charges going back and forth uh, from the Republicans, as is typical of these kind of polarized 
uh, inability to come uh, or go beyond an impasse, uh, saying that the Democrats are not uh, bargaining in good faith. And don't you also hear the argument from the GOP that $600 is simply too much? It will be a disincentive and people won't want to work uh, and will want to stay on unemployment if they get 600 extra as opposed to 200 yeah, this is an argument we've been hearing. Um, and, and, you know, I do think that there might be some people who would rather stay home if they, if you know, if they don't feel safe going back to work. I think, um, you know, the question of whether people are purposely saying, no, I won't return to work and it's only about the money um, is not really borne out in most of the economic studies that I've seen. Um, and I think that, you know, that $600 a week is also credited with really keeping the economy afloat. Consumer spending has not gone down as much as we expected it to. And so, um, I think there's a lot of questions. And then when you add that with this insistence on a liability uh, shield for businesses and other institutions, I think it does raise questions about whether you could see, you know, if 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 the money goes down significantly and businesses do not have the concern of being sued, which we know that they're already being sued across the nation um, for not protecting workers, um, does that force people to go back to unsafe situations? Um, you know, so I think I, I think this is something um, where both sides <laughs> have, you know, I, I mean, the Republicans have been making a lot of noise about the deficit. Um, and I think it's worth noting that that wasn't as big of a concern when we were passing tax cuts a few years ago. And there's been a lot of consternation on the left about the fact that this doesn't, um, their proposal doesn't include any money for food stamps and other assistance for poor folks, but does increase the deduction for business lunches. Um, so, you know, I think it, it just does feel like both the Democrats and the Republicans are, are in their corners and the Democrats don't seem to have a big reason to um, make a lot of concessions right now. I mean, the White House has floated. Let's just extend the $600 for a week so that we have a little more time. And I, the sense I get is that Democrats feel like this is a chance they can't give up because they may not have the leverage they do right now again until the election. Again, Marisa Lagos is politics correspondent for KQED and co-host KQED's Political Breakdown Show. I think we have Greg Ip now. Greg, are you here? Yes. Hi. How are you? Okay. Welcome. Uh, Greg Ip is chief economics commentator with The Wall Street Journal. We've been talking about what's been holding things up here and uh, doesn't seem to be much uh, movement forward. Uh, but there's also this FBI building that the president is insisting has to go up about $1.8 billion and. Well, we'll get into politics a little bit. McConnell is opposed to that, and some of the Republicans are opposed, and there's great division within the GOP. But what about this? This Trump wants another FBI building? That, that seems to be a, a big, uh, almost like a wall. We can't get over that either, can we? Uh, well, it's, I guess, kind of typical log rolling, right, which is that when a bill, a must-pass bill comes along, everybody tries to attached to it the things that are really special to them. And I guess uh, the building you've just referred to is important to the president. Um, but I think the fundamental division here really is a different um, philosophy on the parts of Democrats and Republicans about what this um, unemployment insurance money is doing. I mean, to Democrats, it's really a lifeline to people to sustain the spending, meeting ex expenses like rent and utilities that they can't because unemployment is now like, what, there's 17 million people now without a job. And I think Republicans... Um, uh, see, it's just a big barrier to like getting the economy going again, that you're not going to get job creation and reinvigoration of the economy until people have a strong incentive to return to work. Uh, and that is really what's keeping the two sides apart. Well, the Fed chair, Jay Powell, uh, has talked about uh, the fact that the slowdown from the virus uh, is something that really has to be contained before the economy can open up and before we can get to back to any semblance of normality. But we're really kind of in the dark about all that, about what's going to be safe or when or when the vaccine is going to become. And in fact, uh, 
if the economy is going to come back, uh, many businesses are not going to come back with it. I think that's a safe assumption, isn't it? Right. Well, I think almost everybody agrees that uh, if the pandemic is out of control, then the economy can't recover because it means people aren't going to feel safe going shopping or going to work and uh, local state governments are going to keep things uh, shut down. But I think the problem we have here is that, okay, we agree we we need to get the pandemic under control, but we don't agree on what having it under control actually means. Does it mean eliminating the virus altogether? That might never actually happen. So there has to be some kind of like balancing act about how much risk you're willing to take. And so uh, the the issue with the schools, I think, is a perfectly good example. Uh, The scientific evidence seems to be pretty strong that children do not get this disease at very high rates and that when they do, it's not very serious. Uh, and the evidence seems to also suggest that teachers are not at great risk from getting it from their children. Uh, there's been research in both the Netherlands and in Sweden when schools were open that teachers were not at great risk. But that's really, for a lot of folks, you know, parents, teachers, and um, governors, any risk at all of an outbreak in a school is unacceptable. So we're sort of stuck at this impasse right now. And the same problem is for businesses, which is since nobody is defining exactly what it means to be safe, they can't give assurances to their employees that they will not get the virus and that without those assurances, um, there doesn't seem to be a grounds for like protecting them from the possibility of being sued. And could you also say something, Greg, about uh, the recession effect on inequality? Because uh, before the pandemic, it was one of the best labor markets we'd ever had. And certainly now with this huge uh, recession that we're facing and possibly depression after it, uh, uh, some of that has just gone away. We had better wages, definitely, for uh, many people of color. We had uh, certainly poor and working class people uh, who were doing better before this pandemic. And now we have inequality, especially opening up in ways that we hadn't even imagined or thought possible. Oh, well, you're exactly right, uh, Michael. I, right before the pandemic began, we had unemployment rates down to levels we hadn't seen in 50 years. And for some uh, groups, such as um, black workers, it was the lowest since records had begun in the early 1970s. And we had really seen that make a difference, both in terms of the number of people who were getting jobs and the wages that those workers were getting, folks in retail, folks in um, you know, low-wage jobs, seeing pretty good increases, higher than folks at the, high, uh, the upper end. And all of that went away with the pandemic. It wasn't just that the level of activity in the economy collapsed, but the activities that were hardest hit were those very same activities that employed people of color, minorities, and people in low wages, like uh, workers in, in restaurants, workers in stores, workers in hotels, and so forth. So it's been devastating for the cause of narrowing that wage gap. And I think it simply underlines you know, the urgency of getting job creation back into place as fast as possible, which probably requires a combination of both the sort of stimulus that we're talking about on Capitol Hill so that those who um, have had their hours cut, who've lost their jobs altogether, still have the means to spend where spending is possible, but also getting the pandemic under control and laying out guidelines and rules of the road so the businesses can reopen and bring those people back to work. Greg Epp, again, is Chief Economics Commentator with The Wall Street Journal, and Marisa Lagos is politics correspondent for KQED and co-host the Political Breakdown Show on KQED. Marisa, California lawmakers are drafting a plan to make up funds for, well, the possibility or if the Fed money doesn't come through. Uh, what are they going to do? Do you know, we know at this point? Borrow. <laughs> so the yeah, the the uh, democratically led state legislature um, has proposed kind of a series of its own stimulus packages, mostly relying on borrowing against um, 
future money, uh, specifically on the unemployment pot. They're talking about essentially borrowing from the feds, which is something the state did um, during the Great Recession 10 years ago and just paid off that debt um, by raising taxes on businesses. Um, and then there's kind of a, a, a variety of other pretty vague at this point proposals they put forward this week, um, which would kind of give California its own stimulus package. Some of that is securitizing current revenue, but some of it is essentially asking folks to pay taxes early, uh, expected taxes early in in uh, exchange for vouchers for the future. Um, And I think, you know, as with everything, not to uh, parrot a cliche, but the devil's going to be in the details. And we haven't seen um, where the governor is on this. Um, and I think, you know, it's this is really illustrates the series of tough decisions I think state governments and local governments are having to make. They feel like if they don't give assistance um, and help shore up some of these benefits and other programs that we could see an even worse economic collapse. Um, but obviously they cannot print money and and they are all kind of waiting to see what Congress does. And so um, as part of the budget deal that was cut with the governor um, in June, there is a provision, as I mentioned earlier, that triggers very deep cuts to public education and other spending. And, you know, I think to the point on schools, this is part of the problem. Um, in San Francisco, for example, our superintendent has said that we don't even have, you know, the hand sanitizer and soap we need to reopen safely, even if the numbers were at a place where the health department felt comfortable. And so I think that even if there's data showing that there are ways to do school reopening safely, it doesn't seem like we have given schools the resources, at least um, in California, to do so. And this is at a time when, when schools were already facing some cuts even prior to this pandemic. Well, this is probably make a comment on what Marissa just said. Yeah, go ahead, Greg. Greg, So uh, one of the big sticking points in these uh, stimulus negotiations is that um, Democrats want money for states and local governments. Right. If you look at the GDP numbers we got yesterday, uh, we saw like I think it was a five percent annualized decline in spending by state and local governments. And that's pretty serious. And unlike some of these other parts of the economy, that's not going to bounce back because these budget pressures states like California are, re- are experiencing right now, they're going to last a very long time. Even when the economy comes back, revenue is not. Those cuts are going to fall on first responders, are going to fall on schools. And as Marissa said, this is at a time when schools, if the ones that want to open up, don't actually necessarily have the resources. So this seems like a you – know, I just read yesterday, for example, the province of Ontario in Canada, quarter the size of California – opening all of their schools um, this fall with the help of $300 million from the province to buy all the necessary PPE, protective equipment, uh, and uh, hand sanitizer and all those necessary stuff. So if if there is widespread agreement that schools ought to open if it's safe to do so, this seems like an easy place for legislators to direct funding because it both helps the economy and it hastens the cause of getting the um, uh, economy open again. Let me invite our listeners to join us. I know many of you have questions and concerns. There are certainly uh, a lot of people affected by this holdup that we're talking about here. The Congress not necessarily coming forward and getting beyond this impasse. Uh, If you have something that you want to express as a concern about the economy and the expression we're in, or if you have questions about what's going on in Washington and in Sacramento, you can give us a call right now. We invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available to you. It's 866-733-6786. I'll repeat that. 866-733-6786 is the number for your calls. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. And Jonathan writes, um, let me go to you on this, Greg. Uh, Why isn't anyone playing tape of Trump's and Republicans' talking points justifying their 2018 tax cuts for the rich when they said the economy will grow so much the deficit will disappear? 
that's kind of a political question that uh, Marisa brought up earlier, but you have to wonder uh, about what Marisa said, that is those tax cuts uh, and all the deficits that really came about subsequent to that. And now the talk is from the Republicans about saving money and not having more deficits. Some thoughts from you on that, Greg? Uh, sure. Well, definitely we did not see the um, the uh, sort of the wonderful effect of the tax cut uh, narrowing the deficit. No, it, it expanded the deficit ju just as almost all the nonpartisan economists had expected. But we're now in a very different environment than we were a couple of years ago. The economy is going through a shutdown and a, a recession, the likes of which nobody has seen in their lifetimes. Uh, and just to put numbers into context, I think that that tax cut was expected to raise the deficit by one and a half to two trillion dollars over 10 years. I think we've already added about four trillion dollars to the deficit if you include the current negotiations in just one year. So the numbers are very, very different. So I'm not that surprised that some people who weren't too uneasy about the deficit two years ago are getting kind of antsy uh, right now. These are these are very big numbers. Now, I'd point out that it is the case that this is a lot of money to borrow, but interest rates are very low. Mm -hmm. So it's not imposing that big a burden right now uh, on the taxpayer and on future taxpayers to sustain this borrowing when the economy really needs it. But you do have to be cognizant that the future changes and that interest rates may not always be this low and the debt may not be this easy to carry. So it is logical to have some concern about the amount of money that we're adding to the national credit card here. And Marisa, let me get your response to a tweet from a listener named Michael. He writes, uh, Congress wrote a bill to cover four months of shutdown. How many months can we realistically expect and where will the money come from? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. How long is this pandemic going to last? I mean, I think the the thing is about this is that we saw what happened in states like California and Florida and Texas when we did try to reopen um, and have seen now cases surge. And it's sort of put, I think, small businesses especially in an even worse position in some ways because they've had they went, you know, invested a lot of money, tried to reopen and then had to pull back. Um, but, you know, I think that this gets to bigger questions about the pandemic and leadership and um, at both the federal and state level in terms of testing and tracing. I mean, there are ways that we could do be doing a much better job containing this virus without a vaccine or even therapies than we are. I mean, we can see this in other nations. And so um, I think that that is a sort of bigger question for our leadership. And, 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 and I think, you know, what we've seen is that, the, unfortunately, this unprecedented really public health crisis, at least in our lifetime, um, has devolved into a partisan fight where we're bickering over things like the efficacy of masks or whether, you know, matters that we've, you know, that, that advice has changed. And I mean, I've been thinking too about as we see more research come out that this is more likely something that is spreading through the air than on surfaces. All the money that, you know, governments and private businesses and others invested in cleaning protocols that we may find in a few months aren't even necessarily where they should be putting that money. So I don't know if I really answered that question, but I think that it's a much more complicated question than just do you think it's a good thing to have months and months of unemployment benefits? Well, we should mention, I think here for just a moment, I just want to insert something, and then I'll go right to you, uh, Greg. The, um, the fact is that the de here on the state level, the Democrats are set to adjourn August 31st for the year, though Governor Newsom could call them back for a special session. But they're talking a lot about safety net proposals. They're talking a lot about uh, a stimulus package that would do a lot of borrowing against future revenues, but also uh, creating jobs by upping spending on infrastructure. So there's a, certainly a lot of things in the mix here. Greg, let me go back to you, please. 
Oh yeah, I was just going to try and offer a note of optimism here for the uh, for the listeners, um, which is that notwithstanding that we, first of all, we had a very bad economic quarter in the second quarter, but we actually saw signs of strong improvement towards the end of that quarter, and then we saw signs of things sort of coming to a halt uh, now in July because of the um, spread of the virus in places like California and Arizona and so on. But I'd like to point out that it looks like Arizona, which was kind of at the front end of the second wave, has turned the corner, and it managed to do so without fully shutting their economy down. They uh, they closed the bars. Um, they um, reintroduced some social distancing requirements and capacity restrictions. So cautious optimism, I think, is an order that it may be possible to get the pandemic back under control without going into full lockdown, which means that we can uh, see continued growth, not really strong gangbuster growth, but positive growth over the next few months. So I'm just crossing my fingers on this. And just to uh, we'll take any optimism, um, Greg. <laughs> yeah, well. And I actually think Marissa made a great point. I think we're learning a lot about where money is well spent and where it's not well spent. And I think if we could just simply focus our efforts on the really high return areas, we know that wearing masks is incredibly like cheap and it doesn't interrupt with business at all. And it seems to be really effective at slowing the spread. Cross fingers and cross toes as well, just to be on the safe side <laughs> here. Let me bring a caller in here. We've got Scott who's a teacher joining us. Scott, welcome. You're on the air. Oh, hi. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. I just took to exception to some comments made by your guest. It was my perception that he was making a point that people want to return to work without risk. Well, that's not what we're looking for. I'm a third grade teacher. I'm happy to return to work when the risk has been properly mitigated. It has to do with the physical plant and the buildings that you work in. There are so many outside factors that would make this environment safe. And until those are addressed, it is totally reasonable for teachers or parents to be concerned about the safety of their children. He cited studies in Norway and Sweden that there is no transmission in those areas. Well, I highly doubt that the amount of transmission in those communities when that test was conducted are reaching the levels they are, say, here in Contra Costa, where our RO value is 1.25 and the spread is increasing. I think it's very reasonable in these areas where we are in a upswing of virus spread for us to be concerned about returning to a school environment. Scott, I appreciate your remarks, and uh, I certainly uh, hit on a lot of teachers and what they're experiencing. Did you want to respond, Greg? I only don't say that I'm uh, – I, I, I personally, and I don't think anybody is um, – I'm not making the case here for an across-the-board reopening of the schools. I think obviously the uh, local conditions, uh, like uh, like the caller referred to, have to be taken into account. There are situations where community spread is high enough that no, it would not be prudent to, to open schools. And definitely, you want to make sure that whatever safety protocols are appropriate can be put in place, and also that you continue to make appropriate accommodations and exceptions for people at risk, whether those are teachers or children with parents at home who have pre-existing conditions. And let me bring another caller on. That's Michael in Mill Valley. Michael. Michael, join us. You're on the air. Hey, um, I was calling uh, to ask if California, if you know anything about California capping the lending facility that was created by the Fed, by the Federal Reserve, to stabilize state and local budgets. I know Illinois has borrowed money from the Fed, but it seems to me like borrowing, you know, this is an opportunity for the state to borrow, to invest in exactly the things the speaker was just talking about, the things that have a really high return to stabilize the economy over the next couple of years. And I'm wondering if California is considering that. Yeah, Michael, thank you for that question. You know, Marisa, uh, Greg Epps has actually written about uh, how the Fed has been kind of ineffectual in a lot of all this, so they've kicked it over to the Congress. But do we know what's going on in California with the Fed? 
You know, I'm just looking this up. Um, I guess, yeah, this is a $500 billion fund that the Federal Reserve um, has. I think it was part of a former stimulus package. I have not heard that as part of the menu of options. But like I said, what we saw in Sacramento this week was pretty um, kind of back of the envelope, not a lot of details. Um, I assume this would be something that the governor would have to get involved in. I would be surprised. I don't know a ton. I'm, Greg might know more about the sort of benefits and drawbacks of this kind of borrowing, but I, I would imagine they are literally looking at everything at this point because of all the things that we've just uh, laid out in terms of the trigger cuts and, and the sort of concern over what deeper cuts to schools and social safety net programs is going to mean in a moment like this. Can you shed some light here, Greg? Sure. So the Federal Reserve basically created this program for states and local governments that were unable to borrow because the bond markets had become so dysfunctional. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, is that the markets are actually in pretty good shape now. And if California or any other state wanted to borrow, they probably could. I think the real issue for states like California isn't whether or not they can borrow. It's whether they can see their way to getting the revenue needed to pay that borrowing back later on. And so essentially, I mean, the situation for states is similar to that for businesses. They're not really facing a problem of an inability to borrow. It's a lack of cash flow because the money's not coming in the door. And we get another caller, Wynn in Menlo Park. Good morning. Um, I wonder if the $600 that the Republican uh, uh, congressmen are focusing on is a red herring, because I would think the millions of people who lost their jobs would desperately like to get back because they're out of health insurance. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I think, that's, Marisa, it looks like you yeah, want to step up I mean, here, I just think it, this comes back to the issue of, you know, and I've talked to some employers about this, is like, you know, people may say, if it's a choice between losing my home and going back to a work environment I don't think is safe, I'll go back. But if it's a choice between keeping this on insurance money and not, so I do think it's more complicated than just I'm getting more money or I'm getting as much money as I did at work. I think it's also going to really depend on the person and the situation and, as we've noted, the region where things are at. Um, but, you know, certainly I think, you know, I've talked to, to business owners who do have concerns about this, but also people who just say, hey, like, why would I take this risk for my family at this moment um, if I, you know, have the option to stay home and, and protect myself? It's kind of case by case, really, isn't it? I'm uh, sure, yeah. And Absolutely. Emily writes, what are the chances, I'll go to you on this, Marisa, that California will step in and make up for Congress not extending the $600 per week given they only settle for $200 per week. Will California make up that money that's so critical to so many of the unemployed? I mean, that's on the table right now, and it would, as we mentioned earlier, come in the form of borrowing from uh, a federal unemployment insurance fund, um, and that money would have to be paid back. So I assume that would be the sort of concern of um, California lawmakers and the governor is, is whether we are in a good position to pay that money back and what that would mean in terms of raising taxes on businesses as we try to come out of this recession whenever that happens. And Marisa, where do the undocumented fit in this? Because uh, California legislators have made it clear they want to help and support the undocumented, but the revenues uh, are falling and the undocumented can't get any unemployment benefits. Yeah, I mean, this has really changed, I think, obviously, a lot of calculations for a lot of people and politicians. But, you know, if you look back to January, uh, the governor was proposing expanding uh, Medi-Cal insurance uh, to undocumented immigrants 65 and older. We've already expand, expanded them um, to young people who are uh, not are not documented. Um, and I think that there was a slew of programs, both for citizens and undocumented residents in California, that lawmakers and the governor had hoped to invest in prior to this 
recession, um, you know, we had a, a, a budget surplus in January, if you can believe that. Um, but a lot of that did get curbed back because of what we're seeing right now. And certainly I think folks in California who don't have access to those programs are going to be hurting a lot more. And they also tend to be essential workers and people who work in, you know, farms and other places where we're seeing an uptick in cases and outbreaks. We've got seconds left here, Greg. If I want to go back to you, do a little prognosticating for us. Everything depends on the progress we're making against the pandemic as far as the economy, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, as I was mentioning a minute ago, I think there have been some positive signs, but we'll obviously need to go uh, get uh, further along in that in that regard. And I'd also say um, where we are today, Friday, I think we're, the two sides are closer together on Capitol Hill than we were like a week ago. So I think probably something's going to happen. So between moderate improvement on the pandemic and moderate improvement uh, on the federal stimulus front, I'm cautiously optimistic. We'll take it. Gip, and thank you, Marisa <laughs> Lagos. Yeah. Informed was produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Larberg, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, and Susan Britton. Senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Intern is Jamison Weiss. Executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thank you for being a part of this morning's program. Stay safe and have a good weekend. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.